Baker Mayfield's worst outing of the season came this past Saturday in Mobile, Alabama. In two series at the Senior Bowl, the now former OU quarterback finished 3 of 7 for just 9 yards, and he also got sacked. After an incredible career in Norman, it's kind of weird that his final game, albeit an exhibition game, was kind of a bummer. But for Mayfield, Saturday didn't matter. What really mattered was the days leading up to Saturday in Mobile. Mayfield went to the Senior Bowl to improve his draft stock, and it worked. A report even came out last week that Mayfield was all of a sudden in play for the Browns at number one overall. This news coming after numerous weeks of Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, and Josh Rosen being discussed for the Browns at number one. Now, I've got mixed feelings with the idea of Mayfield being drafted number one overall to Cleveland. Being drafted into the right situation is more important in football than any other sport. I guarantee you Carson Wentz would not be the same player right now if he had been drafted by at least half of the other teams in the NFL. And just look at Jared Goff's development in year one under Sean McVay compared to Goff's rookie year under Jeff Fisher. So fit is incredibly important, not just for Baker Mayfield, but for Allen, Darnold, and Rosen, not to mention everybody else who will get drafted this spring. Maybe Cleveland wouldn't be all that bad for Mayfield. The Browns just hired Todd Haley to be their offensive coordinator. He'll call the plays instead of Hugh Jackson next year. And Haley has had an impressive career as an offensive coach in the NFL. Haley also may be a jerk who couldn't get along with Ben Roethlisberger, although Roethlisberger denied those reports. Cleveland is in a better spot offensively right now than it was a year ago at this time, but I still don't want to see Mayfield playing for the Browns. Fortunately, Browns beat writer Mary Kay Cabot has reported that she believes Cleveland ranks Allen, Rosen, and Darnold above Mayfield at this time. So what would be the best fit for Mayfield? I think the Rams would be the best fit because Sean McVay is obviously ahead of the game offensively, but that's not an option, of course, with Jared Goff already there, so throw that one out. Aside from that, I'd say the Saints would be the best spot for Mayfield because he could learn from Drew Brees and Sean Payton. But the downside of that scenario is, who knows when Mayfield will actually get a chance to play. Brees is an Iron Man. He's 39, but I could see him playing at least two to three more years. He and Tom Brady keep themselves in tremendous shape. If we're hoping to see Mayfield starting the season opener for an NFL team come September, I'd say the best fit for him right now is Denver. The Broncos coaching staff wanted Mayfield on their team at the Senior Bowl, which gave them a week to work with him and get to know him. Vance Joseph is a defensive head coach, yes, which I don't like it when it comes to Mayfield's development. But on the bright side, Bill Musgrave will be the offensive coordinator for the Broncos in 2018. And he recently, he's had decent success as the Vikings offensive coordinator and then the Raiders offensive coordinator. In fact, he was Oakland's OC in 2016 when Derek Carr played so well and was in that MVP discussion. Then Jack Del Rio bizarrely fired him, Musgrave that is, after that season, which was followed by a brutal offensive year by Carr and the Raiders just last year in 2017. Denver drafts at number five. If Cleveland passes on Mayfield at number one and number four, and if the Giants pass on Mayfield at number two, I bet the Broncos draft the 2017 Heisman Trophy winner at number five. Even though he's never taken an NFL snap, I can say with the utmost confidence that Baker Mayfield is an immediate upgrade over Trevor Simeon, Brock Osweiler, and Paxton Lynch. And I think John Elway feels that way as well. I'm Lee Benson, and this is West of Everest.
Field steps up, throws it deep. He overthrows the fullback, who went down the right sideline to meet Dream Flowers and his teammates. Yeah, they did that a lot, little wheel route at Oklahoma, where Flowers was open an awful lot. Baker Mayfield and Dimitri Flowers welcomes us into this edition of West of Everest. Yep, that play exactly what it sounded like in the intro. An incomplete pass in the Senior Bowl. Mayfield tried hitting Dimitri Flowers on a wheel route, and Mayfield overthrew it by about a yard or two. It would have been a pretty big play in that game, but instead it was nothing. Oh well. Hey everyone, once again, I am Lee Benson. Grant will join me in a moment. He and I will discuss Shane Beamer officially being hired, Mayfield's week at the Senior Bowl, some OU recruiting news, a little Super Bowl talk as well. But before we do all of that, I want to thank all of our listeners and supporters for making West of Everest what it is today. We've got a Facebook page now, still in the early stages. Some of you might may have been watching a few moments ago when I recorded the opening take for the first time on Facebook Lives. And if you did not see that, go ahead and go to the West of Everest Facebook page and check that out. I'm trying to give you some behind-the-scenes look into the show and how we produce the show. Also, I posted a few snippets from last week's show on the Facebook page, as well as, of course, links to the full podcast. We'll continue to upgrade that page and make it better. But in the meantime, feel free to give us a like on Facebook. Also, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Lee Benson News 9. Grant is at Grant Benson 25. I'm sure we'll create a Twitter profile kind of in the future, but right now we're just focusing on Facebook. And as always, go ahead and email the show, westofeverest at gmail.com. All right, let's bring in Grant to talk some OU football. Grant, what's going on? Oh, you know, Lee, just sitting here twiddling my thumbs, just thinking about, oh, about, what is it, six months without football coming up here after Sunday. Um, always, at this time of the year, I always just kind of ponder how how boring life is going to be for the next six months without football. We have we have other things that I that I suppose we can pay attention to, but it's just it's just not like this time of the year. I'm certainly going to miss this time when when football is not the number one priority of of everyone in the country. I will as well, and this is the time of year, and certainly after this past Sunday with the Super Bowl, when I'm incredibly and insanely jealous of everybody out there whose favorite sports are either baseball or basketball. Because those seasons seem like they never end. And I know baseball season obviously is in the off season, but it's going to start up here. Spring training is in like, what, a month? And then that'll go until, heck, might as well be November. And, of course, the NBA basketball season has been going on since October, and that won't end until June. And so people that just love those sports, I'm incredibly jealous of them because this is a great time of the year for them. I mean, we're going to get basketball for the next – uh, what four or five months still and the best basketball is still to come in the playoffs and then baseball of course will be starting up here so uh, for you and I who really put a lot of stock into football this is always the worst time of the year coming up and Lee you know I I'm glad you mentioned baseball and basketball because I, I feel the same way I, I am I'm very envious of the people who uh, who are very excited about those seasons. And, you know, you and I, we have a baseball uh, background, so we, we do like baseball as well. But I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan, so the baseball season is, is typically kind of a bummer for me. It's very fun when they're good, which is about once every 10 or 15 years. So there's not really much to look forward to in that respect. Uh, but, you know, Lee, as soon as the summer rolls around, you know, by that time, I think it's it's going to sort of be about time to talk OU football again, seeing as that was it last year. It was it was June when when Bob Stoops stepped down and Lincoln Riley took over. It was June. And weirdly, I remember this. It was the day after 
the OU softball team had won the national championship, and it was kind of unfortunate that Stoops retiring kind of took away <laughs> took away from that from the softball team. But you know, the OU softball wins a national championship. It seems like well, every year, every other year. So they're going to probably win it again at some point. So they'll get the spotlight back. Uh, but yeah, June that was uh, when it happened. And now, speaking of that, we're into Lincoln Riley's first like real off season. And we're going to keep going here on West of Everest talking football. And luckily, we've had a lot of news drop here in January. And the latest news this past week was on Friday, Shane Beamer and Benny Wiley were officially introduced by Lincoln Riley in a press conference setting. Beamer is officially going to be the offensive an offensive assistant coach as well as tight ends coach and H-backs coach. And of course, Wiley is the director of sports performance. Now, Grant, two things stood out to me from what Lincoln Riley said on Friday during his introductory press conference for both Beamer and Benny Wiley. Number one, Riley said that Beamer will have a pretty serious role in special teams. That's a direct quote. And secondly, Riley also said that he didn't want to make the hire of his 10th assistant coach until he knew that his current staff would, quote, remain intact. So Lincoln Riley just implied that the coaching staff is locked in for the 2018 season. Do you believe him, Grant? Well, now that he said that, I... It's hard for me not to take him at his word, but at the same time, Lee, I, I, I did go back and read the transcript of the interview. Didn't he? Didn't he provide a little bit of wiggle room in what he said? Didn't he say that there's, you know, he, didn't he say that you know always things can change? But, but then I think he did allude to the fact that the coaching staff is locked in. So maybe that's just me searching for something <laughs> else. I, I think, I think, it, 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 you know me. I last week I had said that. I, I am still maybe expecting changes to the coaching staff, or I think I said I wouldn't be surprised if changes would happen. I'm going to stick by that right now, but you know, as the days go by, I think it does look more and more likely that the coaching staff is completely locked in for 2018. I keep, I keep saying, though, don't be 100%. Don't put a figure on that. Don't put that 100% figure on it until after National Signing Day. Because if there are going to be changes made, I think it's going to be after National Signing Day. But you know, as I alluded to last week, also Lee, I think as of right now, the safe thing to do is to assume that the coaching staff is is locked in for 2018. And to clarify, no, Riley did not provide any sort of wiggle room. He he said that he wanted to be patient in hiring that position until he was sure that his current staff would remain intact. So he's hired that tenth coach, and if that was his standard, his thinking of you know my staff would remain intact, and he made the hire. To me, uh, to me, the implication is that this is Oklahoma's coaching staff, and barring uh, an, an unexpected departure, uh, they're set in stone, and this is where Oklahoma's going to move, uh, going to go to move forward into 2018 with. So that's the way I read it. Uh, back to the first thing that stood out to me, though, Grant, when he, he being Lincoln Riley, mentioned that Shane Beamer would have a pretty serious role in special teams. That's kind of what we ex- that's what we expected, right? So that's good to hear that. That's very good to hear that. I think with his with his job title, you know, coaching H backs and tight ends, maybe there was a little bit of hesitation in saying that he he for sure would have, you know, a role with special teams. It is nice to hear Lincoln Riley confirm that. Just because if you bring on a beamer, I, w- I would assume that's the you know the main reason you're bringing him on is because of special teams. And you know we went over that last week. I think you and I are excited to get a new voice in there, uh, maybe a new philosophy on special teams. So I, I don't think there's any there's any other way to look at this other than in a positive light. And if you want to hear more about numbers as far as Shane Beamer's special teams units in the past, 
look, uh, go back and listen to the last podcast, episode 38. We talk uh, pretty far in depth about uh, Georgia, especially from last year. Grant talks about S&P numbers. I give you some raw numbers about how good Georgia special teams were last year and a little bit more uh, in depth about Beamer's previous special teams stops as he was a special teams coach for a couple other schools. So that's on the podcast from last week if you have not listened to that. More on Shane Beamer. And here's the question I have for you, Grant. Do we... Should we all of a sudden assume that Shane Beamer is all of a sudden one of the most important assistant coaches on this coaching staff? Well, I mean, every assistant coach is important, but if you're if the reason of hiring Shane Beamer really is to to hand them the keys over of of the special teams and completely rework that that side of the ball, then yeah, I think he is very important. I, I don't know if he's if I don't know if he's more important or than, you know, someone like Bill Biedenboe. Or, or anyone like that, or even more important than Mike Stoops. In fact, he's certainly not. Uh, but, I mean, he is important. He's he, he is the the lone new coach on the staff, if you don't include Benny Wiley. And you know what? Like I said, I you and I have been a proponent of it, that it's it's a good thing to get new voices in there. And, I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, mostly once September rolls around next year, is just, you know, how the special teams are going to change it all. If there's any sort of... Of visible changes that we can see or you know if the mentality is different so I, I I think it's always good to get someone new in there especially someone as highly thought of as Shane Beamer so I mean, to answer your question I think I I did an okay job of that but is is he the most important <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah pat yourself on the back I I, I did a great is. job I I think he is because of all the units obviously the the offense was historically fantastic one of the best offenses in college football history last year the defense was bad we all know that there, there's not there's not going to be any changes on defense for what it looks like but special teams now there's a change and special teams was something where really we didn't we didn't talk a whole lot about all season long and it didn't really come up to bite Oklahoma until it really was in the spotlight in the Rose Bowl whenever Georgia showed how good or how, how a good team can use special teams and utilize special teams to its advantage to get some advantages in the game, which Georgia did and Oklahoma did not in that game. So special teams is definitely a unit where Oklahoma can vastly improve on. There's, a, there's nowhere to go but up. And the fact that they bring in a guy that has a special teams background I think is incredibly important. And to be fair, Jay Bulware was the running back coach, special teams coordinator last year. That will continue to be his role. But Lincoln Riley said last Friday in the press conference that he didn't do a good enough job this past year with Bullware's workload. And Riley specifically said that he didn't realize how much work would go into H-backs as well as the running backs, obviously. So upon reflection, Riley decided to spread the special teams and H-back workload out. And that's a big reason why he wanted to bring in Shane Beamer, because now Beamer will work with H-backs, which that won't be a responsibility anymore for Jay Bulware. And Bulware will just now focus on running backs and special teams with some help from Shane Beamer. I think that sounds like a great, great progression in the Oklahoma coaching staff. Yeah, and I think I think it's good to hear kind of some some introspective takes there from Lincoln Riley, him sort of reflecting on on his season and maybe he didn't he didn't do everything that needed to be done on that side of the ball and I think that's good needs he's correcting uh he's correcting what he thinks is maybe a weaker spot on his coaching staff and I all indications are saying that he made a great hire with Shane Beamer I haven't there hasn't been anything that I've seen that has worried me up to this point yet um I I'm just I'm excited to see the direction the special teams goes um, mostly just, I, I would like to see a lot more aggressiveness. And I think I made that pretty clear last week. 
So here's some notes that I accumulated on Shane Beamer. His availability last Friday, of course, he talked to the media. And to your point, Grant, what you wanted to see, here's what Beamer had to say about his his philosophy on special teams. He said, my philosophy is you've got to be attacking and it all starts. uh, Let me me start over. (laughs) He said, my philosophy is that you've got to be attacking. So I guess more aggressive, like you said. And Beamer went on to say that it all starts with the head coach. If the head coach isn't involved and doesn't place an emphasis on it, it's going to be tough to have good special teams. So you've got to attack and you've got to play your best players. And he said that that's what they did at Georgia. He also went on to say that you've got to make it fun, bring a lot of energy to the meeting room and the practice field. And Beamer said that Kirby Smart was very involved in special teams at Georgia, along with Beamer. And the players saw that Kirby Smart was into it and was making it a very important part of Georgia. And that helped the, the players realize, okay, this is a big part of, uh, you know, not just offense, not just defense. It's also a big part of how we're going to be able to win football games. And so Kirby Smart did it. It sounds like Lincoln Riley's going to do that too as well, which, uh, again, just does nothing but make us excited for the upcoming year when it comes to special teams. Um, let's see. If, uh, do you have anything to add on that, Grant? No. I, I mean, I think you did a pretty good job. Jeezley, I'm, I'm looking through the notes here. You got a pretty, pretty substantial rundown here on Shane Beamer. I just wanted to just wanted the the audience to know just how 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 much of a tireless worker you are and how how in depth this breakdown is. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, well, I mean, this is all from his availability last week. So, I mean, he said a lot of interesting things. Definitely, that's why I have so many notes here. And uh, let's see more special teams before we talk about the offense. Because let's be honest, he's coming in as an offensive coach, and so he's going to have some offensive thoughts as well. But I mean, uh, most people like you and I, I think a lot of the Sooners fans are more interested in the special teams aspect of it um let's see uh you remember back before the rose bowl when we were talking about ou and georgia and apparently lincoln riley had some of the georgia coaches come in before the season began and and to to talk offense do you remember that i do and i'm this was the this was the part of your breakdown lee that caught my eye i think this is a really cool little anecdote go ahead so yeah so they he was asked about that beamer was if he was part of the coaching staff that that came into Norman last uh, last spring is when it was, and he said, "No, no, I, I didn't, I didn't make the trip to Norman." Instead, he said he went to Florida State and NC State, and he said that Georgia's offensive coordinator and offensive line coach came to Oklahoma, and Beamer went on to say that Georgia did take some offensive concepts from the Sooners and brought it into the Georgia playbook, and Beamer said that they had a play in the Georgia playbook called sooner because they took it from Oklahoma. And then he added that the Bulldogs got a lot of mileage out of that play. So there you go. I mean, Georgia at least took one play from Oklahoma and apparently ran it a lot this past year and they called it sooner. I have no idea what play that would have been, but um, apparently it was a successful play. I'm calling my shot right now. I don't know if they're, if we're going to have, if we're ever going to have a way of finding this out. Maybe if you, if you ever get to the, the opportunity to talk to Shane Beamerly, but I think uh, if I had to, to call my shot on which play it is, it's the play that Sony Michelle had the 75-yard touchdown run on, I would guess. I, I think that's the play. A running play? Yeah. Well, see, he said it was, the, he said it was uh, Jim Chaney, the UGA offensive coordinator, and then the offensive line coach that came to OU. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of their, one of their jet motion sweep plays. Or at least maybe that's that's one of the concepts because that that was the that's one of their concepts that seemed the most out of place for their offense, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they took from OU. 
I, I'm just that's what I'm saying. That's I'm just calling my shot. I don't that that would be my best educated guess. Oh, for, okay, yeah. You know what? That's a good call. I was for some reason I was thinking about the fifty yard. Uh, Nick, I think it was Nick Chubb or the one in the third quarter, like immediately. No, but, I'm talking the one, basic, the one in the first half, the one where okay, it was, yeah, where yeah. he was untouched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty good guess. Yeah, and that okay. Well, hopefully I'll get a chance to ask him about that in case somebody else, uh, it, unless somebody else gets to him first. Um, let's see. What else do we have? I have more notes on Beamer. Uh, another thing, too. Let's, let's talk about offense. So he's going to come in as an offensive assistant. Obviously, he's coaching tight ends, coaching H-backs. And he was asked about Lincoln Riley, and Beamer said, of course, he's excited to learn offense from Lincoln Riley. And I thought this story was kind of cool, Grant. He mentioned that one of the biggest wins that – Beamer had when he was at Virginia Tech was back in 2014 when they went to Columbus and beat Ohio State of course we all remember that and I think it's just kind of ironic that or coincidental that Oklahoma obviously went into Columbus's past year and beat Ohio State but Beamer went on to say that the very next week after Vatek beat Ohio State and Columbus East Carolina with offensive coordinator Lincoln Riley came into Blacksburg and beat Vatek 28 to 21 and Beamer used that story as an example of of seeing Lincoln Riley's offense up close and personal, and he remembers that the Vatek defensive coaches were talking about how challenging it was to prepare for that Lincoln Riley offense. And then also just last year, or I guess not even last year, but I mean a month ago or two months ago, whenever Georgia was prepping for the Rose Bowl, Beamer said that the Georgia defensive coaches were talking about Lincoln Riley's offense and used the term that Riley's offense was cutting edge. That's how they describe the OU offense. So Beamer Lots of positive things to say about Lincoln Riley and the Sooners offense, which, of, of course, why, you know, it'd be weird if he didn't have nice things to say because that was the best offense in college football this past year. Yeah, I, cool. I, I mean, this is, uh, this is stuff I like. It does seem like Shane Beamer, he's very candid. Uh, seems like he's going to be a good interview. And, you know, I, I, I think everything, right, we have all the evidence right now suggesting this is a great hire by Lincoln Riley. And I think we're all just ready to see, you know, see it come to fruition on the field. But of course, uh, I mean, what, we're nine months away from that happening. Yeah. So it might as, yeah. might as well be an entire lifetime. And also Beamer is, uh, he's a good recruiter. He's been a recruiting coordinator, coordinator at multiple places as well. So that'll certainly help OU. Um, Grant, do you have any other thoughts on uh, Benny Wiley, the strength and conditioning coach? Because I, I just had one more thought on him, which it's, it's in the script. So um, you've, you could read it. You can see it. I'll, I'll say it on the show, obviously. But uh, do you want to talk about this part or do you have anything else that you want to talk at about Benny Wiley? All I know is that he's he's already started working with 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 the guys who are on campus right now. And I and I've heard nothing but positive reviews. That, that's it. And so he, he seems like a guy who is who is going to get absolutely everything out of you. And um he seems like a player's coach. He seems like a guy that the players love and respect. Which is pretty important to to have probably for a strength and conditioning coach uh, because I think you mentioned this either last podcast or two podcasts ago. I mean, this is a, a coach that has potentially more interaction with the players than any other coach because he's allowed to be with the players, I believe, in the offseason and, and during workouts, whereas like other coaches sometimes can't be with the players, which is kind of a, an interesting kind of aspect to his job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they're going to see this is Benny Wiley is the guy that everyone on the roster is going to see the most of in their four or five years at OU. So I, I think it's it's very important for everyone to like the guy. I, I think that's of the utmost importance. Um, it's so, so far, so far, so good. All I've heard, of course, you know, he's only been with the team for a couple of weeks. So it, I think I think it's tough to gather exactly 
you know, what the talk is about him, but I've, you know, I, I think as of right now, no news is good news. And, and, um, you know, haven't heard anything bad about Benny Wiley at all. Only positive things. So here's the one other thing about Wiley that I wanted to add that I didn't know about until I did a little more research on the guy. Of course, most people might know by now that he was a strength and conditioning coach for the Dallas Cowboys, for Texas, for Texas Tech, and at Tennessee. So some big-name programs there. But this is the part that I didn't know about. He was on a reality TV show in the summer of 2016, and the show was called Strong. It was on NBC. Now, his role in the show was as a trainer, which makes sense. Of course, that's what he does. And he trained a woman throughout the show as part of a team. And the duo was one of 10 teams in the show. So there's 10 trainers and the 10 trainers had a person they trained. I think it was all women they trained. And in the end of the show, Wiley's team, he and uh, the woman he was training, they ended up winning the whole competition. So the guy's obviously a winner. Oh, so <laughs> oh yes, of course, because he won a, a reality TV show. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what, Lee? And, yeah, uh, I think I don't think there's any holes in that time. whatsoever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So anyways, that's interesting. He uh he was on a reality show, so obviously very comfortable in front of the camera and doing media, which he was speaking to him uh last Friday. He had a lot of good things to say, and you can tell he he had no bit no problem answering questions and talking about really really anything. So that's Benny Wiley and um more OU football talk to, going forward. We're about a week away. Well, we are a week away from signing day because you're listening to this on Wednesday, January 31st. And there is some recruiting news this past week. I understand, Grant, and you have that news. Sure. We'll just run through this really quickly. Um, pretty much the only news uh, for, from an OU football standpoint in the last handful of days has been on the recruiting side. And Lee, we have some news of some decommitments from the 2018 class. Actually, these are guys, obviously, who were not signed yet. They were one of the handful of guys who hadn't signed yet. I know there had been a lot of smoke and maybe not some not some fire as of yet about these guys. I think there was some talk that maybe they would they were looking around. Uh, those guys are Lee Travion Johnson, a three star wide receiver. He is from Brenham, Texas. Uh, he was one of the uh, a pretty a fairly early commit of this class. He he signed in June of last year, so he was a he was an OU commit for about six months. He took a visit to Arkansas a few weeks ago, and I, I think that's where a lot of the talk uh, came from. And he may be an Arkansas lean now, but either way, he did decommit over the weekend, Lee. Lee, the other decommitment uh, was Tavion Thomas, a 6'2 running back from Dayton, Ohio. Um, this was always kind of an interesting thing for me. Actually, this this applies to Travion Johnson too, just because the n- numbers wise, you know, at, at receiver and running back, they're they're not particularly hurting. Uh, at wide receiver, they had uh, Travion Johnson. I think was the fourth receiver that they had they got to commit from in this class. So they're going to go with three receivers in this class now. There's already a bunch of receivers on campus. Uh, so fr- from a from a pure number standpoint, I don't think I don't think losing Travion Johnson is going to hurt too much. Of course, unless he goes to Arkansas or wherever he goes and is an All American, then it will sting. Lee, the other guy, Tavian Thomas, he is a he's a Northern Ohio guy. He did commit to OU about five days in the summer before Travion Johnson did. Um, I, I, I gotta think this is, this is one, he's got an Ohio state offer that just came fairly recently. I have to think that's probably what this is, is he finally got his Ohio state offer. And I know on the 24 seven side, a lot of crystal balls, once he decommitted from Oklahoma, went to Ohio state. So I think this is probably, uh, just a situation where he, he, he wanted to go to Ohio state. He finally got his offer and, and he's going to go to Ohio state. It could also be a, just a, a factor of a numbers game as well. He doesn't think he's, he's going to have 
a great opportunity to to step in and play right away at OU, especially with uh, another top 10 running back in the country signing this class, TJ Pleasure. But Lee, also, the Sooners did get a commitment. And it's uh, it wasn't it wasn't a large commitment, but I think it's a it's a commitment of need, especially with Dimitri Flowers uh, graduating after this season. Lee, they got the commitment, and I believe this was just uh, yesterday, so on Monday of this week, they got the commitment out of Arlington, Texas, tight end slash H back slash quarterback slash running back, Braden Willis, and Lee. He's he's listed as a tight end, but I think it's pretty obvious that they're that they're recruiting him for that H back spot. Haven't necessarily heard a lot of talk about Jeremiah Hall, who was the 2017 recruit who's on roster right now, who is who is recruited for that position. Haven't heard a lot about him. Makes me believe that maybe he's not meeting expectations in the program to this point. Uh, so they have a, this this new commit, Braden Willis. A fairly he's a fairly late offer for the Sooners as well, and so he he's obviously a big guy, six four two ten. I'm sure he he clearly has the body to put on 30 or 40 more pounds, which would be necessary for that H-back role. Uh, so, Lee, a, a very uh, lots of things happening in recruiting this week. But any any thoughts on your end? My one thought is, uh, I have two thoughts actually. Now that uh, you bring up uh, the tight end slash H-back, Braden Willis, uh, big dude. I mean, the, his size. I love his size. Six four. What did you say? Six four two ten two twenty. Six four two ten is a high school senior, which means, you know, he could easily get up to two fifty, easily. Okay, so I mean that's that's neat. Uh, secondly, Travion Johnson, and uh, that's interesting to me that he decommitted because he was one of the the players in this twenty eighteen class that was committed to Oklahoma that I was kind of surprised or expected him to sign on early signing day and I was kind of looking at him because he's from Brenham Texas which Brenham is an area where I used to to cover I used to cover high school football and high school sports in that area when I was in College Station Brenham's just about uh, 40 minutes or so south of College Station and I've been to Brenham practice a couple times in a Brenham game here and there and talked to their head coach Glenn West who's been there forever great guy uh, I think he's one of the kind of I, I think he might be considered kind of a, leg, a legendary coach in Texas and uh, Brenham's a big school they're 5A they're just one step down from from the, the highest class so I think that would have been a pretty pretty good get for Oklahoma to get him so I, I might have to go and look into some of my my sources to see if, if they know any th- reasons why why he decommitted unless it's you know even though it's, it might just be hey I think I might have a better chance of playing more at a different school which it seems like that's a lot of reason why kids decommit probably is because they feel like they have better chances somewhere else. So. Yeah, of, of course. And I think that's that I, I, I think it's very uh, it's it's reasonable to suspect that, of course, always when when you get this late in recruiting and, and a decommit happens. I mean, this this happened, you know, a week from signing day. And that's that's it, it's fairly regular, but it's also not something that happens all the time. So I think you always have to start to speculate about you know, is this maybe something that was, you know, was spurred by the coaching staff? Maybe they asked him to start looking around, stuff like that. I don't have any inside information. I'm not a recruiting guru. So um, I, I just think it's always something that you have to start thinking about, um, especially with the 2019 class. OU is in on some really major receivers in the 2019 class, including two, including the the, uh, the three top receivers in the entire country the Sooners are seriously in on. 
So that might have a lot to do with it too. And maybe OU thinking that next year they can sign just an absolute monster of a receiver class. And it's possible maybe Travion was just one of those guys on the outside looking in. All right. Other than recruiting, uh, I think the the next football related topic we have is Baker Mayfield at the Senior Bowl. Grant, did you watch any of the Senior Bowl practices last week? I watched. I, I watched quite a bit of the practices, Lee. Um, and by quite What'd a bit, you think? what I thought. I, I mean, I thought Baker looked like Baker. He looked. Um, I. I, I and, and you know, when I say did I watch any of the senior bowl practices, I mean I, I mean that I watched all of like the little blurbs that were posted on Twitter and online and stuff like that. I didn't actually sit down and and watch the entire senior bowl broadcast. I you know, I I'm you know, I'm not wall to wall coverage. No, I'm not I, I'm not that bored. But I, I I think I did see pretty much all Baker had to offer, at least everything that was actually filmed for television. I saw all of it. You know what, Lee? He when he was actually out there and 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 throwing the ball, going through drills, he he looked professional. He he looked like he was just doing what he always does. Yeah, he looked really good. I watched a decent amount of it uh, at work on NFL Network. You know, cause I'm in at work in the afternoons, and I just have it on the channel. And I obviously we had it in some of the newscasts, his his throws and some of his practices. And you know, he made there's some news last week because he showed up a day late, I believe, and it was reported as it was his mom was. Uh, in the hospital or was not doing well and that's why he showed up late and so uh, that was kind of a whole thing but I mean he ended up arriving he went through weigh-ins he he was measured and did everything he was supposed to do as far as I know and he even played in the game which there was some some reports that he might not play in the game and and he ended up playing two series you know that was I wish we'd have played more it would have been more fun to it would have been fun to watch him play more but I mean you could tell he he wasn't really worried about the the game aspect as I talked about in the opening take uh, one note from practices that uh, the be- the highlight of the week in practices as far as I'm concerned was uh, a red zone drill on I believe it was Thursday I think it was the it was the final day of practice I think they didn't practice on Friday and the game was on Saturday there was a red zone drill where Mayfield got matched up with Dimitri Flowers a couple of times and it just looked like what we've all seen before uh, flowers on one of them was kind of as an up back ran a kind of a a streak route down the field uh, or an out out and up and Mayfield hit him easily and then he ran it again more towards the sideline into the end zone and Mayfield just threw a perfect perfect ball that the defender actually had to play pretty well but Mayfield just put it right in this tiny little spot that Flowers caught I don't know if you saw those I did two plays. I did in fact I actually I watched that little 30 second clip a bunch because I thought it was hilarious because it's like you, you could tell those guys had so uh you know had so much chemistry together and they've they've done that a lot you can tell and and I thought it was it was slightly humorous just how easy they made it look um and so I mm-hmm. I, I totally forgot that Dimitri Flowers was at the senior bowl and watching him do that and watching him receive so well and catch the ball so well, it makes me excited. I, 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 gen- I genuinely believe that Dimitri Flowers can be a really good NFL player just because he's such a good football player. Um, I, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I've said it. I, I, I think I, I started saying it earlier this year. I, I do think he has a future at tight end in the NFL. And I know I think they had him, they had him run through some like fullback drills and, and whatnot. And I, I don't think he's, you know, he's as tall as they would like like them to get. 
uh, in the NFL. But, you know, Lee, if Jack Doyle can be a Pro Bowl tight end, then there's absolutely no reason for why Dimitri Flowers can't be uh, a, a really good NFL tight end. I, I'm serious. I, Dimitri Flowers probably catches the ball better than than a lot of starting NFL tight ends right now. He just he just isn't six four or six five. Yeah, he was there, and also Oboe was at the game as well, or at practice and played in the game. And Oboe had a nice Senior Bowl on Saturday. He had a couple sacks, four tackles, uh, and so I mean that was looks good on the stat sheet. I, I saw I saw both sacks. I mean, one of them was just dominant. I mean, he just speed rushed a guy and just beat the left tackle easily and got an easy sack. And the other one was, uh, I think, more of a power a power move where I think he kind of made a play inside and, and even stripped the ball as well. So Oboe had a nice senior bowl game. Did you see any of that, that highlight? Yeah, Lee. In those fact, highlights? I, I did, actually. And Oboe looked really good. Oboe, t- he looked like first half of the season Oboe. You know, I, I had said numerous times over the second half of the year that it seemed like Oboe sort of disappeared. Um, I, You know what? I, I, and I, I just... I, I don't know what to attribute to that. I, I think a lot of people got upset that that he was playing in coverage a lot more in the second half of the year. I you know and I haven't gone back and charted all the plays, so I, I don't particularly know. But um, man, it sure would have been nice to have Oboe from September in that in that Rose Bowl. It, it would have been nice. And so I, I I don't I don't know what what you can attribute to him just kind of falling off the face of the earth in the second half of the year. But it is nice to see Oboe have uh, you know have a good week of practice there and in terms of measurables I know he's he's not where a lot of people want him to be in terms of just his size but I, I what they did they measured his arms like his wingspan is absolutely massive I guess and that's that's good for an edge defender so they have that and, and obviously I'm sure he tested really well in terms of speed and, and all that he's he's got a very quick first step Lee I did see uh, you know, of course, I saw I saw a handful of examples where you know people were, were were putting out those those cliched, stereotypical, you know, who on which team helped themselves the most, and I saw some people break it down by team and you know which side of the ball, and I saw some people say that the two people that helped themselves the most on on the North team were were Baker Mayfield on the offense and and Oboe on the defense. So I, I think the good, the, yeah, I, I think the general consensus. Among scouts, there is that Oboe and Baker both had really good weeks, and I, you know, we we didn't hear much about Dimitri Flowers, and that's that's to be expected. He's you know going as a fullback, but I I think it's it's very nice to to hear that that Baker you know went up against some really nice competition, other NFL prospects, and and I it was the consensus as far as I'm concerned, as far as I saw that Mayfield was by far the best quarterback there. You, you saw the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean that's another reason why he he didn't play much in the game. And speaking of the game, again, I touched on it very briefly at the top of the show. He was only three of seven in two series. Did you see the two series, Grant? Because I will break down quickly. Not not break down, but uh, the second play from scrimmage was a uh, there's a drop. Uh, his receiver dropped it. Mayfield put it right on the money, and that would have gone for a big gain. And once that happened, then the next play he got sacked. Uh, and then the, the second series, they ran the ball a lot because I think the, the defense was assuming that Mayfield would be throwing it a lot. So they were taking advantage of the defense being super aggressive. And Mayfield just handed it off like three or four times, and they got chunk yardage plays. And then uh, there was the, the intro where, where he missed flowers on the wheel route, which they hit him in practice. But in the game, yeah, he, just, he was slightly off. And then uh, Mayfield threw another incomplete pass on third down and, and somewhat long where uh, he was looking for uh, Gasecki from – Penn State that it was a nice defensive play so uh, there wasn't really any highlights in the in the game for Mayfield and uh, did you have any thoughts on that Lee I actually I did not see a second 
of of All the right, Senior well. Bowl live. The only the only parts actually, I didn't even see any 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 clips of of Mayfield playing in the game. The only clips I saw were of Oboe playing and his his couple sacks. So I I, I thought it was kind of funny you. Um, you titled the our, our breakdown of this episode Mayfield has blah Super Bowl or Senior Bowl, and I first looked at that and I was like, "What on earth is he talking about?" Uh, Mayfield had an incredible Senior Bowl. Every like, he was he was the talk of the Senior Bowl and how he helped himself. Lee, I totally forgot there was an actual game that was played. Completely forgot. Like I, it well, didn't yeah. even it didn't even occur to me that they actually played uh, a competitive football game at the Senior Bowl. And so that was just kind of an aha, oh yeah moment earlier today when I when I was looking all all over everything. But Lee, I thought the coolest thing about this, and I'm going to go ahead and spike the football a little bit here. And and if, I mean, this isn't that impressive because it's the same thing everyone has been saying for damn near six months now about Josh Allen. But I think I had said, you know, once you when you watch his highlights, you can obviously you can see the talent and and his tools just kind of oozing off of him. But when you actually watch him in a real game, you you can see that he's got a lot of work to do and that he is he's one of the most inaccurate throwers of the football you've ever seen in your life. I that was pretty much the the consensus of of everyone that I read at the senior bowl last week about Josh Allen. Was it not? Of just how just he's got a cannon, he's huge and he he kind of has the makeup of a successful quarterback, but man, he just he just cannot he just cannot hit anybody at all. Well, weirdly, yeah, all throughout the practice, his his inaccuracies were were evident, and he didn't look very good in the first part of the game. He came into the game after the second series when Mayfield was done, and Josh Allen played almost the rest of the entire game, so. The rest of the first quarter, second quarter, and he even played into the third quarter as well. And after halftime, after Baker Mayfield had actually left the left the stadium, he like just left and he was done, which they they reported on on the broadcast which was kind of funny. Once Mayfield left, Allen looked really good actually after halftime. He looked like he was very accurate. He dropped he had some like two or three really nice throws. So he showed some flashes and he actually probably helped himself based on that third quarter where he was making some really nice throws. But, yeah, early on in the game, he was very hesitant. He was holding on to the ball way too long. He was scrambling a lot because I think he was waiting for somebody to get open that wasn't getting open. So instead of of trying to force it, he just kind of pulled it down and ran, which, you know, that's kind of smart. But really, I'm sure it's college, and there's probably some throws that he could have made, but he just he's not experienced enough to make those throws like Baker Mayfield might be. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as quarterback-wise goes, yeah, Baker Mayfield's a much better quarterback than Josh Allen, but – I got to say, I'd love to see him throw a baseball and get clocked. Josh Allen, that is. I'd love to see how fast he can throw a baseball. Yeah. Because um, I, I think he threw like the, the hardest football yeah, it like was in years. 66 miles an hour. It's like the high. It's, it's like incredible. It's like the, the fastest th- it, like football throw that's ever been recorded or something like that. And yeah, that's so right. I, I don't I, I don't mean to, to bash on Josh Allen. I mean, he's obviously he's a very talented guy. I just and this is maybe me just kind of spitballing now. I don't understand how you do all those other things so well, how you everything, like, you know, how you have all of the tools yet, but for some reason you're just not accurate. How does that happen? I, I just don't, how, how do well, you, how does, how do baseball players, how do closers, you know, that can throw a hundred miles an hour, you know, they can't throw strikes sometimes. It's, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, you're right. Probably the same kind of idea. And so, Hey, I, I, you know, if if an NFL team can find a guy who can who can really sit down with Josh Allen and work with him and work on that accuracy, I, I mean, I can I can absolutely see how NFL teams could fall in love with the guy. But I mean, as of right now, I when I see him play, he's a guy who I mean, there's there's no way 
at this point, like where he is right now. And of course, you know, he's going to have an entire off season to work on this. But as of right now, he's not a guy who, who I don't even think is capable of completing half of his passes in the national football league. I I just, he's, I, I I just think he's going to, he's going to be so inaccurate and, and I, he's got to be a guy that sits for two or three years. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, even players that, that were, that were better accuracy wise than him struggled. Like, I mean, I, Jake Locker comes to mind. I mean, he was always like below 60% completion at Washington and he didn't lie. I mean, I know he got, I think he got injured and I think concussions might've knocked him out into his career, but even when he was healthy, he wasn't particularly accurate. Yeah. And very good. And Josh Locker or Josh Locker, Jake Locker was a guy Lee who physically could absolutely play in the NFL. I mean, he was, he was huge. He was fast. Uh, he had a cannon of an arm. He just he could not consistently hit guys in the hands. And if you cannot do that in the NFL, you're not gonna you're just not gonna have a job in the NFL. And I think that's always that's always gonna be the case unless you're Joe Flacco and you had a miraculous Super Bowl run at at one point in time. That's about it. Grant, where do you see uh, Baker Mayfield? I, I guess you know I I talked about where I think the best fit for Mayfield would be. Where would you like to see? Mayfield go where do you think the best fit for him would be um real like realistically the teams that are realistically the best fit for him are the two that you mentioned Denver and and New Orleans New Orleans I think is is by far a better situation than Denver is uh I I I think the Saints are just would be a home run destination for him it's it, it if I'm Baker Mayfield that's the place I want to go uh, having been said that, I don't think he's going to last that long in the draft. I, I doubt he gets into you know the the mid twenties, where's which is where the Saints are going to be picking. They'll probably be picking at twenty six or twenty seven. Uh, so I, I just don't know if that's realistic. I think Denver at five is a lot more realistic, and I don't think that's a terrible situation. Uh, you know, that's a that's a team that has some some veteran receivers. They have they have a veteran running back. I I, I think you could definitely do much worse than that. Another team I do want to bring up, just in, uh, there, there's other teams that I think would be good situations. A team that you brought up here, Lee, uh, the Dolphins, I think is not a terrible situation for Mayfield. I, I think that would certainly be preferable over these other two teams that you mentioned um, in the rundown here, the Bills and the Jets, which I think would be uh, disastrous for Baker Mayfield. I, I, don't, I don't think that'd be good for him. Uh, another team that you haven't mentioned at all that I think actually, you know, other than the Saints, may actually challenge the Saints for what actually would be the best situation for him. And it's the Minnesota Vikings would be the best situation, I think, for, for Mayfield, along with the Saints. However, I, that's another one where I, where I don't think is, is, is incredibly realistic. And Lee, as of right now, the Saints, or the Saints, the Vikings don't have a quarterback on their roster. They're all free agents. So I, I, I thought that was interesting and, you know, Maybe uh, I, I if if there's a team that a lot of people don't see coming after Mayfield, the Vikings might be one of them. That's all I'm saying. I understand why you think that'd be a good fit, but with the defensive head coach and Mike Zimmer and the fact they don't have an offensive coordinator right now, or did, did they did they promote anybody after Shermer left? Or do that, you know that I'm not 100 percent sure, so I don't so, want to I mean, say it. Yeah. So I guess in theory they could bring on a really nice offensive coordinator in the off season. Which in that in turn that would make it a better destination for Mayfield. Uh, obviously, the Vikings would have to trade up to get him because he's not going to last that long. He's not going to last. I don't think Baker Mayfield will last past fifteen, and that's being conservative. I mean, I, I think he's going to be a top ten pick at this point, unless I think something that's really weird happens. Too. That, it's, it, that's that's what it's starting to look like. I, I mean, I I think you're probably right about that. And his 
his performance at the senior bowl almost cemented it. It seems like I think a lot of, especially when he, when he measured in over six feet tall and I guess his hands are huge, which is a big deal to NFL scouts. So, and I mean, we know, we know he's got a really strong arm. We know he's, he's incredibly accurate. Uh, I, I think one of the questions that they're, that scouts are going to continue to answer about him the next handful of months is uh, how is he with concepts? How is he with, uh, with, with breaking stuff down? And, and I think, you know, from what we've seen in the last three years and some of the throws he makes, I, I think that's that's a part of the game he takes very seriously. I, I I saw a quote attributed to Baker from this past from this past week at the Senior Bowl, uh, but he made the comment, and, and I can't. I saw this on Twitter, but it was a quote. He made the comment that be, that playing quarterback is all about an, uh, anticipation and uh, and all that stuff. And if 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 you're throwing the ball when the receiver is open, you're too late. That's what Mayfield said. So that shows me that he at least understands. And to be to be successful in the NFL, you got to throw guys open, and that's something that Mayfield has been doing for three years at OU. And that's something that I that I think a lot of the the national people um, just honestly aren't aware of, uh, of of just how many NFL throws that guy made on a regular basis. And that that always stuck out to me as as bizarre when when people say that Mayfield was was a system guy because there's a lot of people who said it and saying that he he doesn't make tough throws and. I, I guess that's an easy way to point out people who don't know what they're talking about. You know, you know, what I, you know what I mean, Lee. Yeah, I, I have a thought on that in a second, but before that, I'll I'll touch on that quote you were talking about, and I believe you you must did you read that Sports Illustrated article? Oh, that's what it was. That it was that? it was the Monday it was the Monday morning quarterback article. Well, this article and maybe it was from that, but this is from Robert Klimko at Sports Illustrated, and yeah. this was a really interesting quote. That kind of makes me, uh, I mean, I'm kind of worried about it a little bit, but at the same time, it he, Mayfield comes off as like, oh yeah, everyone knows this, so maybe it's not that big of a deal, but here's what he said, here's what he's quoted as saying. This part is the part that worries me. He says, I've never really been able to see over the guys, and he talks, he's, he means like the offensive linemen. He's talking about the, Mayfield says, quote, I've never really been able to see over the guys. I just trust where they're at and what I see in the defense. And then he goes on to say, nobody sees over the six foot eight left tackle. Even Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Sam Darnold can't see over that guy. You're seeing concepts and understanding timing. If you see the guy open, you're late. You have to anticipate it. End quote. I'm kind of worried that he's never really been able to see over the guys. <laughs> oh, see, I, I find that funny that you were slightly worried, whereas I heard that and I thought, okay, I think the NFL scouts might 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 drop trow just hearing that right now because that because that lee that tells me what he said there that he gets it he totally understands that well yeah then that's why i kind of softened it with like well he seems very confident so obviously it's not that big of a deal to him i mean with just with him saying this is about concepts and you know trusting what you see in the defense i think that is something that a lot of young quarterbacks in the league that's something that they don't realize until they've been in the league for years Whereas you got Mayfield, hadn't even drafted yet, and he's coming in, and that's something that he knows already, and something that he's coming into knowing that hey, this is something that I have to do to be successful at this level. Yeah, I, I don't think that's that's I don't think that's something that a lot of NFL quarterbacks, you know, thought going to the league. You think Johnny Manziel or RG three was thinking like that when they came into the league? No way, no way. And then the other thing too that uh, you mentioned before, I started talking about how. People will say he hasn't made a whole lot of NFL throws, and you said that that'll that's kind of a a tell that maybe they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to Baker Mayfield. 
can we maybe maybe it's it's still too early technically but i think the time is coming and it, it as far as i'm concerned it's now can we stop the whole idea of like not in an uh, this guy did not play in an nfl style offense or a pro style offense so therefore he can't translate because i think it's been proven beyond a doubt that for the most part, when it comes to these like NFL slash college offenses, college football has been ahead of the NFL, and it's the NFL's fault for not adapting it. And I feel even more confident about that. I watched the first half very closely of that Eagles Vikings game. The Eagles for like half of their plays are NFL are college style RPO type concepts. I mean, and it worked for the most part every single time against the best defense in the NFL. And so, not only is it those RPO concepts, Lee, I mean, it's their one-read concepts. Nick, They did not ask Nick Foles to do a lot in that game at all. Uh, and it's it, it shows you that even if you're, if you're still able to execute those plays, you know what? Even if they're kind of simple in concept, when you got professional athletes and NFL players running them, they can still work. And I think the Eagles are, are, are proving that. And also, a lot of people forget, the 2007 New England Patriots went 16 and 0 running Texas Tech's offense. So, I mean, that's that's all you need to know right there. Of course, there you know, that was Tom Brady and Randy Moss, but still. Yeah, so I, I guess my point is, I mean, moving forward, you got to expect a lot of NFL teams are going to are utilize more college type type concepts and RPOs and spreading it out and just being different because guys like Lincoln Riley are just ahead of the game. And when I hear like, oh, Baker Mayfield was in a was not in an NFL type offense is more of a spread offense, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you know what? It's not the NFL or it's not Lincoln Riley's fault or Baker Mayfield's fault that the NFL has not put those types of concepts and plays in a whole lot like Lincoln Riley has figured out works well at the college level. So I guess point being is that Mayfield played that offense, which I'm sorry. Yeah, technically, it's not a not really a pro style offense, but a lot of the concepts, a lot of throws he made are pro style plays, and he a lot of defenses that he read are similar to what he's going to be asked to do at the next level. So it's not like Baker Mayfield's one of those old school Texas Tech quarterbacks that was a system kind of guy that you didn't really know what to expect in the league. This guy is smarter than the average system quarterback of the past. And whenever somebody points out that he was an assist, he was a system kind of guy, or he didn't play in a good offense in college, that translates to the NFL. I think that again shows that they don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, this is not this is not Baylor offense. Spread everyone out and run a slant and beat them with your athleticism. That that's not what this is. Uh, o- OU's offense has as is very multiple. They run lots and lots of different concepts, and, and we we've mentioned it a ton this year. Also, Lee, just the amount of NFL route trees that are in OU's offense is is you know it's 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 very unusual to the college game. There there's lots of very high concept routes uh, in OU's offense, and, and I think I mean obviously they're able to run that because they had an NFL you know caliber quarterback running it for the last three years, so that helps. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Just the whole idea about how you know what college does is too simple for the NFL. I, I think that's garbage. That's that's just I, I I've, that's very naive. I, I think if if something works, run it. And I you know I I hope that you know kind of when our generation starts to you know come in control of the NFL and you know we get more people our age and and, and leadership positions, coaching roles, someone like Sean McVay, I think you're going to see a lot more innovation in football. I think right now, maybe not right now is probably not, but you know, early on in this decade, it was pretty stagnant for a while and I think a lot of people are starting to come around to, well, maybe it's not just our way or the highway. Maybe there are different ways of doing things. And and I 
I do find it funny that you still have just kind of this typical blueprint for a quarterback in the league. That's why they look for these tall, huge guys. That's why Josh Allen is getting so much love, despite being a fairly below-average college player. It's just because he has all those tools. And and I'm I'm going to finish this conversation just on on one scattershot thought that I had. Um, someone like Sam Darnold, who is being talked about as the number one pick. I only see him being successful in the NFL running an offense like Philadelphia runs, uh, like with RPOs and stuff. I, I think that's that's where Sam Darnold's skill set lies, and I'm curious as to how many NFL people agree with that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think Sam Darnold still has a long ways to go in development, uh, but I think he can be a good quarterback in a lot of different ways. To be honest with you, I don't know if he's just an RPO kind of guy. I I thought I thought US because I think USC's offense is kind of like that, right? I mean they yeah they run yeah, a lot that's, of they, and I, I don't think USC's offense really utilized him as 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 good or the way that he needs to be utilized. So I think we differ when it comes to that. Uh, man, I had one more th- oh one more thought to end the, the football discussion. You're talking about how. You know, hopefully it starts to offensively the NFL starts to adapt and be revolutionized and we start seeing more college concepts coming, which I I'm with you yet. We're hoping for that. But in Seattle, they've hired Brian Schottenheimer to be their offensive coordinator, who is like one of the worst offensive coordinators in the history of the NFL and has never had a good offense. So it's like, well, that's the NFL for you. They just recycle bad bad coordinators and I feel really bad for Seahawks I know it's kind of like way out of left field thought but uh he's one of the worst offensive coordinators ever he's never produced a good offense well the logic job the logic with that in the NFL and and I I slightly understand it just because you know I've been very outspoken about this and how I feel like players in the NFL are a lot more important than coaches and I I truly do believe that and I'm assuming Seattle's logic in there is thinking Brian Schottenheimer has never had a Russell Wilson to be able to game plan with so and I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying that's that's sure, almost that's probably it. that's almost certainly what their justification is. I mean, Chip Kelly had Mark Sanchez for a little bit and made Mark Sanchez look a lot better than Mark Sanchez actually was. And that's who Brian Schottenheimer had for a decent amount of his career and couldn't figure out how to make Mark Sanchez look good. So, I mean, Chip Kelly is pretty good at what he does, but that's just that's my example of yeah, Mark Sanchez isn't great, but with the right coaching you look pretty good sure and i and i think i'm glad you brought up chip kelly because i just i think that underlines just a a a more broad point about the nfl you got someone like chip kelly who was run out of the league when i think he was probably one of the 10 best coaches in the entire league and i think that just shows you a lot of the thought process uh, in the nfl it's kind of a fraternity and uh I, i i just don't think they like outsiders that much all right let's talk some basketball real quick OU basketball ever since we started talking OU basketball in this podcast grant the Sooners have been kind of eh, kind of whatever and I think it's just kind of coincidentally matches up with the meat of their schedule and playing some tougher games uh the last time we talked it was right before that Kansas game and we were hoping that they'd come out and play well against Kansas and OU did OU came out beat Kansas big Kansas win. played really well in that game too that was a good game yeah, that was. And, and Long Kruger with a brilliant strategy at the end, fouling and forcing that guy to shoot free throws, and he missed every one of them. I was and- so happy to see that. Uh, I mean, how often do you see the obvious coaching move actually be made in situations like that? And that's, I, I mean, that was, that was, it was so obvious, it was almost genius. Yeah, no, it was, it was Long Kruger great call and it worked out well and Oklahoma gets the win but then they followed up on Saturday with a loss to Alabama in Tuscaloosa where you know of course 
at this point, any team that plays Oklahoma, especially a home game against Oklahoma, the fans, the team, they treat it like it's the national championship game because of Trey Young. I mean, he's he's the talk of the town. I mean, he's, they talk about Trey Young on Sports Center every single day, which is great. It's great for Oklahoma. It's great for it's great for the brand. And I think it's kind of neat that that Oklahoma and Trey Young has gotten so much publicity. So that in turn makes every single game Oklahoma plays that much bigger to the opposing team and you saw that against Alabama their fan base was was super excited they were chanting overrated in the first four minutes of the game and I thought that was kind of a weird decision but they ended up getting the last laugh because Bama ended up winning the game Um, it's here's the question does Trey Young just need to do more or do we just need to see his teammates make more of their shots what do you think you know, Lee, that's, that's an interesting question. I feel like I could answer it in a bunch of different ways. So first of all, we'll start with, you know, should he take over the game more? And so I think that was actually, that, that really was my contention uh, last week as well. Lee, what was the game where, um, where he was 7 of 9 and he was, he was really efficient? Scored that, that was Kansas. That was Kansas, okay. So I, and everyone was, was really praising him for that game, and and I agree, you know, if you score 27 points on nine shots and, and don't turn the ball over, that's a great game. Lee, that's a game I think, I think he should have been doing more in that game. I thought there was a lot of bad possessions where um, the possessions were bad because Trey Young didn't have the ball um, and bad shots were coming up. If, if we're going to take a bad shot, I'd much rather Trey Young take the bad, bad shot than, uh, than Matt Freeman you know, you know what I mean? So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, against Kansas, I, I really did think that he didn't do enough. I I'm glad that he was efficient and he did all that and they won, which was great. Uh, but I, I thought there were, there were some possessions where he, uh, at the end of the shot clock, he should have been trying to create more and, and not someone else. I would much prefer the ball being in his, in his hands late in the shot clock. But at the same time, I also do understand the concept of, you know, getting your teammates involved because that could pay off. You know, later down the line, them gaining confidence, them just pl- them just playing better. But it is starting to look like where you know, if if this team is going to be success uh, successful going forward, it really is just going to be about can they make their open jump shots. And uh, you know, that, I think that's just kind of the game you have to play, especially when you don't really have uh, you know low post scoring inside that you can rely on. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's got to be more just his teammates have got to make more shots. And if you look at the box score, that Bama game, OU loses by seven. They were leading kind of midway through the second half or so. Trey Young got hot and, and brought Oklahoma back. And I think they were up by five at one point before Alabama made more of a run and, and Oklahoma went cold. Brady Manick, one of seven from three. Christian James, two of seven from three. So combined, they were three of 14. And Let's be honest. I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but let's say let's be let's say I bet 10 of those 14 attempts combined between two of them were wide open threes. Yeah. I mean, no, you're right. And it, it, if not all 14 of them, just because normally Trey Young is doubled, he kicks it. And it's not always Trey Young kicking it to them. I mean, every once in a while, somebody else will kick it out. But when Brady Manick is one of seven from three and Christian James is two of seven from three, Oklahoma is not going to be a whole lot success not gonna be that successful quite frankly because unless Trey Young you know has a, a premonition and realize oh you know these guys can't shoot today I gotta just take every shot which still if that happens there's no guarantee that Oklahoma will be successful depending on, on who the Sooners are playing so uh, I, I just it's 
it's it's going to be difficult for Oklahoma to win when Brady Manick and Christian James combine three of 14 from three because that's really what they're there to do. They're there to hit those open open jump shots, open threes when Trey Young penetrates and kicks it out to them when they're wide open. And yeah, you know, and that's their game. And you know, what? I, I I happen to like basketball like that. I think the three point shot is is I I think it's a smart way to play. It's it's worth more points. I think you should take a lot of them. Um, and I'm glad that OU is kind of or Lon Kruger has has decided to kind of bring the program kind of in that way. I mean, we saw it with Buddy Hill. They went to the Final Four, doing all that stuff, and I like it. Um, but like you said, you know, if those you, you live by the three and you die by the three as well, um, and I think there's there's quite there's an obvious trend uh, going just on the road. They can't shoot on the road, and I think that's been pretty evident in Big Twelve play. I know they beat TCU on the road. Uh, that was I, Trey Young scored damn near forty in that game. He scored over half the points. But I mean, it seems like at at home, Brady Manick and Christian James shoot the lights out, and then they just they they can't hit water out of a freaking boat on the road. Have you noticed that too? Yeah, and they they did shoot well in that TCU game, but every other game, yeah, it seems like it's just really difficult for them to make shots on the road. Do you, do you, Grant, do you still think that that Oklahoma defense isn't all that bad? I was just about to get to that because uh- I think the defense is not good at all. It is, it is just. Uh, Man, it's just so difficult to watch. And they gave up fifty five percent shooting okay, to Alabama. And so, and Alabama last week I kind of pushed back Alabama on you because you used kind of the raw total. Uh, I don't uh, think that's a great metric, especially for basketball, and especially when OU, OU is the fastest uh, power five team. They go the fastest. They they just they play with a lot of tempo. Uh, having that been said, Lee, I mean, watching, I just. And I, I think I've had a problem with this, I mean, the last handful of years. Their defensive intensity just does not seem to be the same as other teams. And I don't, I don't know if that has to do with other teams not having Trey Young. So you don't necessarily, it doesn't, it doesn't show as much. But um, yeah, I, I think we're definitely at a point where their defense is certainly an issue. Um, and I, I think I made the comment last week that I didn't think they were bad on defense. And they weren't good either. They were just kind of right in the middle. I'm definitely leaning more towards bad now. I, I didn't. I, I know going on the road in college basketball is never easy, but that uh, the game on Saturday against that was that that was not a good game. Alabama is is not a, is not an NCAA tournament caliber team. They're just not. Uh, that was not that was not a good loss. And uh, so, some of the shots that Alabama was getting in that game were were a little too easy for my liking. And it hasn't been just that game. There's there's a trend developing. Their low post defense when 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 McNeese and Latin are not just erasing shots. Their low post defense is atrocious. I, I'm I'm terrified of any team that has a low post scoring game against them because I just I don't know if they can win under that scenario. And you saw because I, I, I just don't know if they're gonna be able to get enough stops. It's they're that bad in the low post. Ever since Big 12 play began, Oklahoma has played nine games, and that includes the the Alabama game, which is obviously out of conference. In eight of those nine games, OU's allowed at least 80 points. Uh, it's just, and some of them, I mean, they allowed almost 90 to TCU the first time. They almost allowed 100 to TCU the second time. Well, even won that game. Gave up 89 to West Virginia, 89 to Oklahoma State, 87 to Kansas State. I mean, just randomly they held texas tech to 65 and that was that one game was like oh i mean oklahoma showed that they can play some defense finally well that was kind of an outlier that was this is a dumb 
a dumb analogy, but that was very similar. That was the Ohio State of the football season where they were able to hold a, a really good team to not a whole lot of points. And uh, the, the remaining games, the defenses looked uh, back to where it was for most of the year. It's just this is not going to be a legitimate team unless they can figure out how to play defense. And, and luckily, they've got a whole month to figure it out. That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. And I, and I think, yeah, the, one of the frustrating things about it is that they, they play good defense in spurts. And, and I think that's one of the more frustrating things about basketball is a, a very, very large portion of defense is just is straight want to and effort. And, and I think it is sometimes frustrating as a fan. I'm not accusing anybody of not, of not giving enough effort. That's not what it is. It just sometimes looks that way, especially, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you're watching playing basketball. Uh, bad defense looks like that a lot. Um, and so I, I think it's just frustrating for us as fans to watch it. And um, I, 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 it would be nice to see them be a tad more aggressive on defense, especially with just the aggressive style they play. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's frustrating for me to watch all of these Big 12 teams and then Alabama on Saturday play Trey Young so aggressively and, and see him come out and double them. And I, I wish they would do that to just random point guards and I, I've seen teams do that to OU for years they did that you know for four years when Buddy Heald was here and I've never seen OU do it to anybody and it just bugs me I wish they'd play a little more aggressive defense that's all and the last thing before we move on to something else uh, here's here's how I'm kind of approaching it the rest of the way especially if Oklahoma doesn't shore up the defense and and it's obvious that let, let's say we get a month from now and the defense still looks kind of whatever and it looks like, well, if they're not adjusting, oh, well. I'm just kind of looking at it as like, well, there's not much to worry about here. We figured Oklahoma would be would be better this year with Trey Young, but you know, not a, not a top 10 team. We wouldn't probably think that. So at this point, I'm just going to enjoy all the positive things that this team does. And if things are negative, okay, so be it. And is that something that you are – is that sort of a, an idea that you will take too, or do you have higher standards? Yeah, no, I, I, I this year I expected the OU basketball team – to contend for an NCAA tournament appearance, I think I think right now you, it's pretty safe to say that they're you know barring a, a second half of the season collapse, they're they're certainly they're probably going to be a protected seed in the, in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I for me everything after that is gravy. I think they they've showed they've shown us that they're capable of playing at a nationally elite level over the course of a few weeks. They've done that this year already. Um, so I, I think. I think right now, as fans, the mindset just needs to be get into the tournament and see what happens, um, and just and hopefully it's fun. Um, but until then, I mean, I, the the basketball team is still a lot of fun to watch, especially when they win. They play a very entertaining brand of basketball, and you know what? Uh, I think eventually they're going to get hot again shooting the basketball. I just hope that it's that it's in the middle of March to the end of April and not uh, you know not in February sometime. I think that would be that'd be kind of lame. Before we wrap up this episode of West of Everest, let's talk a little bit about the Super Bowl coming up. We haven't discussed NFL on this show. As, I mean, we talked about the Senior Bowl and the draft, things like that, but that's still talking about Baker Mayfield in college. I don't think we've discussed NFL at all on this show since we began at Grant, which knowing us, I mean, me more than you, I mean, I, I love the NFL. I love the NFL more than I love college football. And I, I'm sorry to, to if I offended some of you Oklahoma fans, but I I love the NFL I haven't watched as much of it this year because I watch a lot more college football this year unfortunately but uh, the fact that I've uh, stayed away from NFL talk I think is kind of a minor miracle on this show so to uh, to rectify that let's talk Super Bowl Eagles Pats 530 on Sunday first question I have for you Grant you're in Minneapolis right now how are all the Vikings fans doing with the Super Bowl being there this week and the Vikings not being in it 
shockingly fine. I, I think it's um, maybe this. I, I tell you, man, Vikings fans just whenever you talk to them, they 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 want to make sure that you know that they're a tortured fan base. But at least how they've acted the last ten days or so, it doesn't seem like it. They don't seem to be too upset about getting just worked in the NFC Championship game. I think a lot of them are. Uh, I think a lot of them that that Minneapolis miracle is to find Diggs play. Like seriously, for a lot of them, that was just as good as winning the Super Bowl. And I'm being dead serious. I, uh, so so many people were just are were so excited about that play that they didn't really care how the rest of the season went. And that's that's just kind of the the vibe I'm getting from a lot of Vikings fans, which I think is weird. I think that's a loser mentality. That is incredibly weird. That's that play almost at this point now would be. I would I would hate to have that play. As I part hate of the history. I would hate that play. It would it's it ruins the season because after that nothing good happened. That it, you, yeah they they won they won a divisional round playoff game which the Vikings have won more of those than any team in the history of the NFL without winning a Super Bowl. So I don't know why they're so you know I, I don't know why they're so excited. It almost about would have been that. better for that to not happen because you know like I mean yeah it would have been heartbreaking to lose that game to the Saints but uh, I mean. Well, maybe not. I mean, they they did lose at least. You know, maybe maybe what it is, Grant, is that the last time these Vikings fans saw their team play at home, it was that game. So it was like, oh, but then you know they lost on the road, so it wasn't the same as you know getting blown out at the at the I almost said Metrodome, uh, blown out at U.S. Bank Stadium. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on here. Yeah, I, I guess just the, the most of the talk the last you know ever, ever since the the NFC Championship game ended, most of the talk has just been about. Uh, the Vikings fans just have have this weird thing with with Eagles fans. They just they you know you saw the viral stuff about how awful Eagles fans were to Vikings fans, and of course me who has kind of followed this stuff for a large portion of my adult life, I I already knew that Philadelphia fans in general were had had a terrible reputation, so uh, none of that surprised me. So but exactly, that's yeah. that that's that's been the the main talking point the last ten days is just how awful Eagles fans are, and that's pretty much all anyone wants to talk about it's talking about loser mentality i think that's a massive loser mentality because if if you're a vikings fan and you didn't know that about philadelphia fans going in then i mean i'm not gonna like this isn't us like excusing bad behavior but it's just like it's us just dealing with reality if you're going to be a, a, a football fan and you're going to go into an opposing stadium in a game that big with all of your gear on and your jerseys and your color like what do you think's going to happen, especially with Philadelphia being that kind of uh, having that kind of history? And I guess also, too, and, and maybe this is one sided. I haven't done enough research on it. I saw some Philadelphia like radio, either a personality or station post something like, listen, like ask Falcons fans. They didn't have really any issues the week before. It's because you Vikings fans like I guess and Vikings media got like super cocky going into that game before talking about how they were going to come and take over the stadium and it, it, blah, blah, blah. So that really riled up the Eagles fans even more. Did you hear any about that? Like did Vikings fans kind of rile up the Eagles fans even more going into that game? Mm, I don't know about rile them up. I, there, okay. I know, I, I know Vikings fans were, were very confident and they should be the Vikings. The Vikings frankly are a better team than the Eagles. Um, Oh yeah, they, they they weren't in that game on the, in the during the NFC Championship game, but you know I digress. So I mean, sure, yeah, Vikings fans were really confident going into the game, and why wouldn't they have been? Um, you know, they were they they had just beaten the the second best team in the NFC, the Saints, and they were going in to play Nick Foles and not the second yeah. best team in the NFC. 
Um, they, they ran into a buzzsaw. Sometimes there's not a lot you can do about that. But no, I, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know, Lee. I, I've, uh, Eagles fans have always had a miserable reputation. So I, th- this was, sure, yeah. t- to me, I, I don't, there's not even Eagles fan. I mean, just Philadelphia sports fans in general have a terrible reputation. So I, I mean, it's, it's part of the plot and silver linings playbook. That movie. I mean, it takes place in Philly, and, and it that's a that's like it's a good movie, I guess. But a big reason why I kind of don't like that movie is how crazy they portray the Eagles fan base to be, which it probably isn't that crazy because that's probably exactly how the Eagles fan base is. I mean, yeah, like, this is this is a fan base, and I know I'm I'm casting a very large shadow on a lot of different people here, and I'm I'm sure a vast vast majority of Eagles fans are perfectly pleasant human beings. Well, yeah, of but course. this is I mean, this is the this every is, every fan base is going to have crazies. Yeah. I, I, this is the same fan base that booed Michael Irvin as he was laying unconscious on the ground after just having a career-ending concussion on their field. The same, and they also booed Santa Claus and also like a little kid on the jumbotron. They, maybe lot, they were booing. Uh, maybe they were just booing concussions. Maybe, but boo, uh, this concussions is, suck. Boo. This was been that. this was something the the Minneapolis media should have done a much better job of preparing Vikings fans for the Eagles fans because I, I didn't I didn't think Eagles fans did anything different than they always do I just think I, I think the Vikings fans are a very sensitive bunch and if, if if there's one word I can use to describe Vikings fans sensitive would would certainly be the best way to describe them well I know we were supposed to talk about the Super Bowl and we've gone about 10 minutes on the Vikings which I did not play on that so I guess quickly who's going to win this game Grant and I have a brief quick story to tell before I pick a winner that I know you, you've heard the story but I'll have to tell the people that listen to West of Everest but uh, uh, should I go first or would you like to go first you can go first because I think I can play off your story pretty well all right so he, I have the th- this is the greatest Super Bowl streak in the history of sports that doesn't that doesn't make sense this is the greatest streak in the history of sports and it has to do with the Super Bowl how about that I, uh, as, uh, you know, picking a winner, just, you have, you have a 50, 50 chance. Let's be honest to pick the winner of the Super Bowl. I have, uh, gotten it wrong literally 11 years in a row. The last time I picked the Super Bowl correct was when the Steelers beat the Seahawks in 2005, I believe. I think that was 2000 or maybe it was 2006. That was, that was the 2005 season. The Super Bowl was played 2006. Did you did you miss some games in there that you didn't have a pick for? Or do you just not remember or what? Oh no, like I I picked all of them. Is that all and of I, them? I I feel like you have to be missing one in there somewhere. Since 2006? Oh, you're right. So that probably is 11, isn't it? No, you're so you're right. The, my fault. The next one was the Bears Colts, the infamous Bears Colts game. Of course, I thought the Bears are going to win that one. That was insane. That was the most predictable Super Bowl maybe ever. Eh, no, it wasn't. Then, of course, after that, it was Giants Pats when the Pats were unbeaten and were unstoppable, and they lost the Giants. Of course, I had the Patriots in that game. Are you kidding me? Then it was Steelers Cardinals. I really thought the Cardinals were going to going to knock off the Steelers in that one. I had a good feeling about Kurt Warner because remember, Kurt Warner, you don't bet against God and puppies. There was some sort of backstory with that. I, I, got, I remember Bill Simmons was talking about that back then. Then there was Saints-Colts. Thought the Colts would win it, and somehow the Saints won. That, that big onside kick at the start of the second half, that pretty much put them over the top. Packers-Steelers. Packers won. Thought the Steelers would win. Again, Giants-Patriots again. Thought the Pats would beat the Giants in the rematch. Of course, the Giants won that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so forth. I mean, I thought Colin Kaepernick and the Niners would beat would beat Joe Flacco and the Ravens. Was wrong about that. 
Uh, I thought Peyton Manning would would handle that Seahawks defense, and it was totally opposite. The Seahawks blew out the Broncos that year. <laughs> Seahawks Pats thought the Seahawks had it, and then the Patriots had that crazy ending. Uh, Broncos Panthers thought the Panthers would win that one because I just didn't think the Broncos and Peyton Manning were going to be able to do anything offensively. And then, of course, last year, the capper take Atlanta, and it looked great, twenty-eight to three, man. And nope, the Patriots won. So anyways, 11 years in a row. So that being said, the question is, who will I pick to win the Super Bowl? Well, I'm sorry, uh, Eagles fans. I think Philly's going to beat New England. They're about five-point dogs. I like the Eagles to win this game. I don't think the New England should have even won last, uh, the, the Jacksonville game. I get it, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, fine. I like the fact that the Eagles offense is actually a lot more dynamic than the, the Jacksonville offense. And I think Philly's defense is a lot better than not, maybe not a lot better, but I think Philly's defense is better than Jacksonville's defense. And this game isn't being played in new England. It's being played in a neutral site. Uh, you know, maybe the crowd will be pro Patriots randomly because it's in Minneapolis and all the Minnesota fans that are potentially there will be booing the Eagles and going for the Patriots. That could, that could affect things. But, uh, I like Philadelphia to, to not only cover, I like Philadelphia to win this game. And uh, so I guess I should be congratulating Tom Brady and the Patriots on another Super Bowl championship. Perhaps, perhaps. You know, Lee, I, I, you let me know about that little stat earlier today that you've, you've literally gotten 11 consecutive Super Bowls wrong. That is insane. I, I don't even know what the odds are. I mean, well below 1% the odds of that would be. I mean, you're talking decimal places. It's just as impressive as uh, picking winners. Oh, absolutely. Straight years. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess to I, I've been quite a bit better at picking Super Bowl winners than you. I've uh, I I haven't kept a running count like you have, but I, I do know I have only since that 2005 2006 game that you mentioned. I have only gotten two games wrong uh, that I mentioned to you. Lee, those games were that uh, that Denver Seattle with uh, that first meeting where Seattle blew them out. I thought Denver would win that game. Um, and then the other one uh, for me, what was the other one that I mentioned, Lee? I, I can't even remember it now. Um, so was it Seahawks and Patriots? Uh, yes, it was Seahawks Patriots. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. So I, I took the Seahawks in that game. Uh, that one, even with that one, see I, those close games. That's a crapshoot. I mean, especially with that one last year too. You can't really be too hard on yourself for that last year because I mean, the Falcons. Well, were- that's what was so funny though. Is like I thought my streak was finally broken last year because I mean. The Pats were favored. Everybody was picking the Pats to win that game, and I really liked Atlanta. I thought the defense was actually a lot better than people were giving them credit for. I liked how fast they were, like how young they were, and I thought the Atlanta offense was so much better than people were giving it. I mean, I, granted, I mean Matt Ryan won the MVP, and the offense is really good, but just I thought the matchup for Atlanta was so good in that game against New England, and it was. It showed for the first, what, two and a half quarters or however long it was when it was 28-3, to and then whatever. I mean, I, I think – Tom Brady got word that I picked against him and he, uh, you know, decided to uh, come back and win the game. All right. Yeah. And you know what, Lee, Here, here's the thing. I, I, I typically, uh, me, I, I typically do well picking Super Bowls for whatever reason. I feel like I, I just, for whatever, I, I feel, I feel slightly uh, like uh, omniscient about this. I feel like I can always just kind of see what the headline's going to be. Of course, this coming from the exact same person who had an opening take last week about how nothing is set in stone and nothing is. Uh, there's nothing that's meant to be. Of course, now I'm saying this, um, yeah. Lee. I think I, I, 
I, I think the Eagles are going to win this game also. Um, oh. Me, yeah. Okay. So uh, This might be me, the first time we've, we've agreed on a pick maybe since that Seahawks-Patriots Super Bowl. Yeah. I so it was only a few years ago, but... So, so let me... How can I preface this? I don't think really anyone can make a serious argument uh, for the Eagles winning if you mention Nick Foles. I don't think there's like I think it's possible that Nick Foles plays as well as he did against the Vikings. Is it likely? Hell no, no way. That's the best game Nick Foles has ever played in his life, college, pro, or high school, probably. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Given the given the uh, the the stakes, yeah, probably more so even even in high school. But here's the deal, Lee. Outside of Tom Brady and Gronk, the Eagles are probably better at every single position. They just the Eagles have a better roster than the Patriots. Uh, and typically, I would say it doesn't matter. It's just all about who you have under center. And and I think to a certain extent, that's that's actually really true. But I, there's just something about the, I I really think the Eagles win, and I. There's just something about Super Bowl teams and when people come in and, you know, when, when people tell NFL teams, especially in the Super Bowl, that you're such an underdog, there's no way you can win, those teams always win. Pretty much always happens in the Super Bowl. And I, I'm, I'm going to take the Eagles for that, for that, you know, that matter only. And, yes, I understand that I'm picking Nick Foles against Tom Brady in a Super Bowl. I, I get it. I know. Um, I, I, I. I think you're you're smart to take New England in this game. I, I think that's that's kind of what everything is pointing towards. Uh, but I, I just have a feeling that the Eagles are, are gonna are, are gonna step up and play a really good game defensively. And uh, the the Patriots can be slowed down. Jacksonville showed that last week, and and I think you know the Eagles probably have a little more of a consistent offense than Jacksonville. And I I think they're gonna find some sort of way to get the job done. This is a unique situation where. A team that's playing in the Super Bowl, the Eagles in this case, they got a buy to to start the playoffs. Obviously, that they didn't play on Wild Card Weekend, but yet the first, the, the previous two games, and now going into the Super Bowl, they've been underdogs in every single game. And the first two were at home, so back to back home dogs, and now they're going to be Super Bowl dogs. So third for the third game in a row, people aren't giving them a chance to win. And you touched on that a second ago. I mean, that's, that definitely counts for something. Granted, this game is not in Philadelphia, so that's a big hit to the Eagles, I believe. And also the extra week probably doesn't doesn't help Philadelphia either because you give the best coaches an extra week like Bill Belichick and company. Things are going to – they're, they're going to figure something out. But, uh, yeah, I I like Philly. I, I think that you, that's a good point you made about the roster. And really, outside of Tom Brady, I mean – yeah, Philadelphia is just kind of better everywhere. And, yeah, Gronk, I mean, who knows how healthy Gronk – I mean, Gronk will – it was a concussion. He's already back at practice. Um, so it's not like he's got, like, a, a bum leg or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's his head. That's kind of an important thing. But Gronk will probably be full go at this point. Um, but I, I like that Philly defense. And, uh, man, they they can get pressure with their front four. And I know that's – you've made that point before off air about how that's how you beat the Patriots and beat Tom Brady. You get pressure with, with four down linemen – and Philly's four down linemen are really good at getting pressure. And uh, let's see if uh, let's see if they get to Tom Brady. And I mean, the key, though, will be Nick Foles getting a lead, because if they can get a lead on the, the Patriots, then that'll make New England a little more one dimensional and, and expect New England to run a lot of screens. And, and you know, you know what they do, their offense, they always figure it out. It seems like 
And, uh, you know. Oh, I, I like I, yes, I, I fully expect. I mean, New England is going to be ready to play. New England's going to play well. I, I think, I mean, I I expect nothing nothing else of the Patriots other than that. I just, for whatever reason, I, I do think this is the Eagles' year. Again, I understand the irony of me coming out and saying that that's not a thing last week. Um, however, this is my show, and I can do what I want. I think it's the Eagles' year. Uh, I think they're going to beat the Patriots. All right, that's our show. We'll be back next week with more OU football discussion. Now, of course, signing day is next Wednesday, February the 7th. We normally record this show on Tuesday nights, then release it on Wednesdays. Well, the plan is to continue doing that again next week. Now, the reason behind that is that we know the Sooners will not be signing a bunch of kids next week because Oklahoma brought in most of its class in December during the early signing period. So even though when you listen to this show, it'll be signing day will be will have been over. We're not going to have any signing day thoughts because we'll, we'll have recorded prior. We'll save our signing day takeaways for the next week because, honestly, it's a lot more convenient for me to record these on Tuesday nights. Simply, that's, that's another big reason why we're going to do it. So until next Wednesday, for Grant, I'm Lee. This is West of Everest.